We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Slogans are like suitcases. You can pick up a lot of complicated nuances and ideas and pack them into a slogan, right? So like if I were to yell out at the top of my voice, Roll Tide! That, there would be a whole kind of cloud of meaning and identity packed and condensed into the single drop of that statement. Now, in the same way, if you'll look on the back of our worship guide, in the same way, we've got these slogans down at the bottom that identify our basic defining beliefs. Orthodox faith and liturgy, reformed worldview, evangelical doctrine, and charismatic practice. And tonight, we're going to look at the second phrase, the second suitcase, and we're going to kind of rummage our way through it, a reformed worldview, a worldview that is shaped by Scripture. Now, your worldview, it's the committed kind of orientation of your heart that gives you a lens that you see all of life through, that gives you the kind of frame of reference for how you interpret Everything that happens to you from this kind of event that just happened to me to the big things in life, like Stephen's friend who killed himself last Sunday. Your worldview is the orientation of your heart that becomes like your retina. It's what you see life through. Now tonight, as we think together and look together at Scripture about what a reformed worldview is, we need to start at the beginning. We need to start at the first page of the Bible. So if you'll look with me at Genesis chapter 1, the very first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now this little phrase is actually a poetic device called a merismus. It's, it's a way of doing things in poetry where you pick two terms of extreme and you use it to signify the whole. So if I were to say to Janelle, I love you day and night, it's a way of saying what? I love you all the time, okay? Now, so when you read through Genesis chapter 1, what you see is that when it says in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it means that God created everything. Everything that exists, He made. And when you turn to the second account of creation to Genesis chapter 2, you learn that this not only includes things like the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets and the continents and the oceans and all of this stuff, but in Genesis 2, we see that it's not only God creating physical matter, but it's God creating everything that exists. So in verse 15 of Genesis 2, we see that God creates work. This is something God made. And in verses 18 and verse 22, we see that God made the institution of family. He invented it. He created it. He set it into motion. And in verse 23, we have the first poem in the Bible. In other words, art is, finds its source in God. God is the source of all art. And in verses 24 and 25, we see that God creates sex. This biblical view of the world is where a Christian worldview begins. A Christian 
orientation to life begins at this place, that God is the creator of everything. Now, secondly, everything that God made is good. So look with me back at chapter 1, look down at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, there's a word in the original language of the Old Testament, which is Hebrew. There's a word that's used to describe what is being meant here by goodness. And it still hangs around in a lot of cultures today. It's the word shalom. Shalom, it it, it means a life of flourishing, where our relationship with God, with each other, and with creation is just exactly how it's supposed to be. A world of shalom is a world where we find ourselves delighting in our relationship with God and delighting as we live rightly in relationship with each other and delighting as we live rightly in relationship to the, to the earth, to creation. Now, this is life the way it's meant to be. And it's life the way Adam and Eve experienced it in the garden. This right kind of triangulation of relationships, their relation to God, to each other, and to the earth. This is shalom, when all is as it should be. In fact, seven times in Genesis chapter 1, God declares that his creation is good. It's in this state of shalom. He looks at what he's created. Seven times the the flow of the narrative stops. And it says that God looks at what he has created and he embraces it. And he does not let it go. He loves his creation. The whole cosmos is in the presence of the Father. He, He gazes upon it and he embraces it and everything is living wholly before God. Everything is under his dominion. He's the Lord of all. Now, when we turn to Genesis chapter 3, things get ugly. Here for the first time, sin shows up. And in that moment, when Adam and Eve throw away their birthright of beauty, in that moment, everything is broken. And Shalom is vandalized. Nothing from there on out is as it should be. Here in the West, since the Enlightenment, we have this tendency to minimize the gravity and the scope and the power of sin. But Scripture shows us that sin is comprehensive. And it's catastrophic. Take work, for example. Remember I said to you that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates work. That's in Genesis 2.15. But immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, remember the scripture was read to us. What does God say to Adam? He says, the ground is cursed because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you by the sweat of your face. You will eat of it. So we see that Adam's sin was not only this kind of personal moral issue, but it reached out and even messed work up. Have you ever worked hard all day long 
and you get to the end of the day and you can't identify a single thing you've accomplished? You know why that is? Because work itself is broken. It's twisted. It's out of sorts. Have Have you ever been like at the end of the day and you can't even go to sleep because you're so filled with worry and kind of tension over what's going on at work? You see, Scripture is giving us a picture here. Before sin, work was right. But after sin, it's shattered. It's broken. And not just work. Look at the last thing we are told before the mutation of sin enters into God's creation. Look at chapter 2, the very last verse of the chapter. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now this is shalom. Here is a picture of the family where there's no fear, right? There's no shame. There's no secrets. There's no insecurity about love handles or blemishes or measuring up to some sort of kind of crushing and unrealistic standard. And this, the last thing we're told before sin enters creation is that family is a place where you're fully alive and you're fully yourself, and you're fully at peace with who you are and who your spouse is. You're at peace with your role and your responsibility, with your strengths and your weaknesses. This is shalom. But then in chapter 3, sin enters the picture. And when we get to Genesis chapter 4, the very first thing we're told is what? Cain kills Abel. So all of a sudden, when you look at Genesis as a novel, which is the way you should look at it, and you compare the last scene of Genesis before sin to the first scene of Genesis after sin, you're forced to compare family. Family before and after sin enters God's creation. And what do we see? We see that after sin, family is a place of lying and deception and insecurity and fear and jealousy and anger and murder. In other words, the reason it is so hard to be a good family is not just that you and your spouse or your children or your parents, it's not just because you're messed up people, which we all are. It's also because the very institution of family is cursed and broken and twisted. You see, because when Adam and Eve sinned, when they rebelled against God, everything in this creation was drawn into the mutiny of the human race. That's what the first four chapters of Genesis are showing us. Now, I I wish that we had time to look at a lot of the details. We, I could show you that the first poem in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2. And the second poem in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4. And when you compare poetry before sin and after sin, we see that art is broken. That sin broke everything. And, and we see broken art today when we look at cheesy paintings and uncreative music and the kitsch that fills our culture and a lot of our churches. What what the author of Genesis is doing is showing that the cancerous tentacles of sin invade every square inch of this universe, the human and the non-human, the personal and the institutional. 
that sin defiles and disfigures the beauty of shalom. And from Genesis 3, it just grows. I mean, it just goes on and on. And it gradually goes from bad to worse. It's this image of humans just devouring one evil after another until eventually, as you're reading through the Bible, adultery and theft and murder and rape and war seem to fill page after page after page. It's the story of creation falling deeper and deeper. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it's like a meteor that has torn itself away from the core to which it belonged, and it's falling. It's the picture that Nietzsche gives us in The Madman, in his book, The Gay Science, when he says, we are continually plunging downward and backward and sideways and forward and in all directions. And then we get to Genesis 12. This incredible passage that Sarah Coleman read to us where all of the sudden we're given hope. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In these, the first three verses of Genesis 12, we see that God, just like in Genesis 1, when he turns and he embraces creation in his gaze, we see in Genesis 12 that he refuses to look away from his creation. He refuses to let his creation go. He continues to embrace the cosmos. And when we get to the moment in scripture where Jesus is finally born, when we go all the way to that passage in Matthew that Allison read to us, did you notice what it did? It says, listen very closely to what it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then it begins to wind backwards. The son of David. And then it goes back even farther to Genesis chapter 12. The son of Abraham. Another one of the gospel writers, Luke, in his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Why? Why do the authors that recorded the life of Jesus give us these long genealogies stretching way back to Genesis 12 and to Genesis chapter 1? Here's the reason. Because if you want to understand Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he accomplishes, then you must understand Christ against the backdrop of creation and sin. In other words, creation is the presupposition for Easter. And if you tear Easter, if you tear Christ, if you tear Christianity out of the beginning of the Bible, then you're going to turn Christianity into some tool at your own disposal, filling it with your own meaning. Salvation has meaning only when we understand what is being saved and why It needs to be saved. That's what Matthew and Luke are doing by saying, if you want to know Jesus, you got to go all the way back. Now, in Christ, when you look at him this way, when you read him not as some 
oh, there's Jesus all of a sudden showing up on the scene. But when you see that he is a Jew embedded in the Middle Eastern culture, embedded in this long story that God has been writing for a long, for millennia, when you look at Jesus in that way, then you can see that salvation is the restoration of shalom. You can see that it is the restoration of our ability to live rightly with God, rightly with each other, and rightly with creation. You see that that triangle is being put back together. You see that salvation is what one guy said. He said it is the re-webbing of God and humans and creation. Injustice, fulfillment, thankfulness, and joy. Now, this is fundamentally different than a Western view of salvation. You see, our Western culture, our view of salvation really goes back not to Jesus, but to Plato, the Greek philosopher from the 5th and 4th centuries before Jesus. Now listen, let me tell you three things about Plato's view of salvation. Had nothing to do with Jesus or Judaism. Plato said that salvation is three things. It's vertical. Our destiny is upward in heaven. He said, secondly, salvation is otherworldly. Our souls are saved into another mode of existence, this disembodied spiritual state. And he said, thirdly, Salvation is an escape. We're not saved as part of this world. We're saved out of this world. We escape this world. Now look, that is the Western view of salvation. And Christianity is opposed to that on every single level. There is no platonic dichotomy or hierarchy between the body and soul in Christianity. God made the body and God made the soul. And, and redemption is for the whole person, body and soul, as well as the whole creation. So when you read the Gospels, you can't jump from the birth of Jesus to his death. What happens in all those chapters in between? There's a physical man walking around doing physical things. And when he's healing people, you know what he's doing? He's saying, hey, your body wasn't made for sickness and I'm here to reverse the effects of sin on your physical body. And when we see Jesus raising people from the dead, what is this? Is this just some kind of prelude to Jesus getting on with the real business of redemption? No, it's a prolepsis. It's a foreshadowing. It's a picture. It is Jesus saying, you know what? Death, it's a moocher. Death, it's an imposter in this creation. And my redemption kicks death out. And when we find in the Gospels that Jesus is asleep in a boat and there's a storm, what does he say to the storm? Peace, be still. In other words, nature, I didn't make you to be red in tooth and claw declaring war on humanity. I came to restore shalom. Peace between humans and God and creation. And it was ultimately in his crucifixion and his resurrection when he takes on all of the powers of death and sin and evil and he opened the door to the new creation. This is why we celebrate Easter in the spring. 
because new creation is coming to life and little plants are coming through the soil. This is why I've talked to you about this before, why the ladies misunderstood Jesus for being the gardener when they saw him right after his resurrection. And it's why John wrote that down decades later after the fact. Why? Because John knew that the ladies were right, that the gardener had returned to the garden to bring life. And it was in his resurrection that we get a foreshadowing of God's plan to resurrect the entire physical universe. And that's the difference between Christianity and Plato. And anytime you're singing a song, even if it's in a hymnal that talks about leaving this earth, and that's where paradise is, you're singing Plato. You're not singing Scripture. You're not singing Christ. Now, when we say this is a Reformed worldview, What I mean by that is that it was in the Reformation that this reading of Scripture was rediscovered after it had been forgotten for a couple of decades, really, not very long. Because I'm about to read you a quote from Athanasius in the fourth century, okay? Listen to what he says. Even the very creation broke silence at his, at Christ, at his behest. And marvelous to relate. Now, Athanasius is saying, I can't believe I even get to write this down. It's marvelous to relate to you. Creation confessed with one voice before the cross, that monument of victory, that he who suffered and thereon in the body was not man only, but son of God and savior of all. We know this, he says, because the sun veiled his face and the earth quaked and the mountains were rent asunder and all men were stricken with awe. These things showed that Christ on the cross was God and that all creation was his slave and was bearing witness by its fear to the presence of its master. And by his death and salvation, all creation has been redeemed. This is the way the church has read redemption for the whole time. And it's only in the West when we've forgotten Scripture and remembered Plato that we've lost track of this. This is the great passage of Scripture that Allison read out of Colossians. Listen to it again. It's right there. For in him, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Comma, just in case you think Paul means by all things, all your little morality, comma, whether in heaven or earth, a Erasmus. He's going back to Genesis 1. He's deliberately quoting Genesis 1.1. Paul's a good Jew, and he's wanting you to know that the redemption of Christ is as wide as the scope of creation. You see, if you wrench Christ out of his backdrop, if you start reading Matthew in chapter 2, if you stop reading Luke with his genealogy, If you insist on reading Christ as just some show up on the scene, if you forget that he must be read against creation and sin, then you miss this. That he died for the redemption of all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The cross. It's about everything. Can you see this? That a biblical worldview, a reformed worldview, this view that was rediscovered in the Reformation, that it reveals to us 
A salvation that is so much broader than this narrow dribble we get here in the Bible Belt. Now, when we turn to the end of Scripture, we get it again in the passage that Sandy read to us in Revelation 21 and 22. I'm not going to read it to you again, but maybe you could read it again in your own reading this week. But what you get in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible is a vision of what this universe will be like when God unleashes his creation. We see a picture of the entire created universe, not destroyed but set free from the bondage of sin. A glimpse of the day when God will absolutely undo all of the mischief that Satan has been up to. You know what you get in Revelation 21 and 22? You get God, humans, and nature. You get the restoration of what? Shalom. The flourishing of this triangle the flourishing of us as we live before the face of God and his presence pervades everything. The flourishing of the the physical creation as it is rightly stewarded by us. In the last two chapters of the Bible, just like in the first chapters, God leads us to hunger and thirst for the glorious renewal not of life like Plato conceived of, far off out there where we fly away one day, but here, the glorious renewal of life on earth, an endlessly thrilling adventure of living with God on the new earth. I I love the way C.S. Lewis put it at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. When, When this part of life is over, he says, but really what's happened here is we've just turned the first page. And now we're ready for the rest of this incredible adventure. Creation itself unleashed. I remember sitting in Tim Davis's house about a year ago and talking about this. And as a group, us thinking about what will the Rocky Mountains look like when they're unleashed. And when you have eyes that can handle it. And what will the mighty redwoods look like? when they get to show themselves in their created glory. You think it's hard to keep Alan inside now? Can you imagine? So here we are, waiting and longing for the restoration of all things. What do we do? What do we do while we wait? Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Mark chapter 16, and look with me at one little verse Mark 16, verse 15. And Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to who? The whole creation. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Do you hear it? Jesus has commissioned his church to take up his mission of making God known as the ruler of every square inch. In the midst of Hitler's rise to power, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was a lecturer, sort of like a professor 
at the University of Berlin, okay? So this is <laughs> ground zero, right, of Nazism. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer decided to lecture on Genesis 1 to 3. And in his lecture at this public university, in the heart of Nazism, right in the teeth of Hitler's vicious rise to power, listen to what Bonhoeffer said. The very first day of his first lecture, he said the church lives from the end. It thinks from the end, from Revelation 21 and 22. The church lives from the end and thinks from the end. It acts from the end. It proclaims its message from the end. The the church speaks within the old world about the new world. And because it is surer of the new world than of anything else, it sees the old world only in light of the new. To be a Christian is to stand in Revelation 21 and 22 and everything we see and everything we go to, to see it through that lens. Now, when your view of this world and heaven is more influenced by Plato than it is by the scriptural narrative, you know, when you have this kind of vertical, otherworldly, escapist view, then you tend to think that God is ultimately concerned with souls and spiritual things. And if a spiritual heaven is the greatest thing God has, then the earth and our physical existence and everything you do in your body, you go to work, you eat, you drink, all the stuff you do is second best and second rate. Now, This is the kind of distorted view of Christianity that Nietzsche so ruthlessly criticized. Listen to what he said. We should no longer bury our heads in the sand of heavenly things, but we should remain faithful to the earth and do not believe those who speak of otherworldly hopes. Ninety years later, we hear the same thing coming out of John Lennon's mouth, don't we, in his song, Imagine? How does he start that song? It's exactly this, and he's right on the money on this part of it. Imagine there's no heaven, and then you can imagine all the people living for today. In other words, the biblical worldview sees the end and the beginning, and it gives a profound worldliness to Christianity. God loves his creation and he has never wavered from his plan to reclaim the entire cosmos. This world matter matters. This physical life is not second best. And to act like that is to dishonor the creator and to distort our mission as his people. Now the church here in the Bible Belt has got to get out of the habit of thinking of mission as limited to souls, only working to see sin defeated in people's lives, only trying to get people into heaven. In this view, most of life falls outside the mission of the church. This narrow view of Christianity results in a religion that focuses only on the religious aspects of culture and leaves everything else the government, or school, or what have you. But listen, 
when Christ took on a physical body, okay? When Christ became flesh, he guaranteed that the physical stuff of this world would no longer be mortal. By taking on physical flesh and rising from the dead with that flesh, the empty tomb, Jesus didn't rise from the dead as a spirit. His body crossed the threshold of death. When he did that, he was taking this material of this earth into himself and he was giving us a foretaste that the material of this earth will be filled with the immortality of God. So a reformed worldview emphasizes this great biblical truth that Jesus is the creator and redeemer of all things. That's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. That word Lord means there are no boundaries to his lordship. They, they developed this saying in direct kind of challenge to the saying Caesar is Lord. In the Roman culture, to be a citizen, you had to declare that Caesar owned everything. And they said, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord. There's no square inch of this universe, nature or culture, personal or institutional, that lies outside of the right of Christ to say, that's mine. A reformed worldview emphasizes this idea that salvation is comprehensive and restorative. Now, let let me wrap all of this up by showing you some ways that this is actually going to play out in the life of all things new. Think about business. What does this say about business? Well, a church with a biblical worldview can work to equip the businessmen and women of this community to see business in and of itself as a good thing, fundamentally good, but broken by the fall. So business in and of itself is a mission field. And we need to help businessmen in our church and in this community work for business to return to its original calling, which is to lovingly serve the needs of citizens in a delightful and fulfilling way instead of making a small minority very rich while oppressing the poor. This is the job of a Christian businessman, is to see business restored to a shalomic entity in the community, uh, an entity that contributes to the right relationship of humans to each other, to God, and to creation. Politics. What does a reformed, a biblical worldview say to us about politics? It says that some people are called by God into the mission field of government. And if God calls you into politics, you're a missionary You're a minister every bit as much as I am right now in this moment as I'm sitting in this worship service preaching the gospel. You're a minister and your assignment is to work for the restoration of politics to what it was originally intended to be. Now what does this say to us about art? A reformed worldview says that to some, 
God gives the gifts necessary to labor in the mission field of art. And to others, should find another calling, right? Don't sing, don't draw, don't even try to read poetry. Missionaries in art are people who see their calling to paint or to sculpt or to dance or to draw or to design or to shape the physical medium they work in into something that is good and true and beautiful. Because our God is a God of goodness and truth and beauty. And we as a church need to lift up the artistic Endeavor. We need to lift up the artist and we need to pray for artists who can wisely discern where art is broken and work for its renewal. Think about how a reformed worldview helps us to think about athletics and competition. I think about Emmy and Haley. It says to us that sports and athletics are a gift from God. You don't have to justify sports by saying it helps me stay in shape or Whatever. It needs no justification. In and of itself, it was created good. In and of itself, competition is a gift of God, but it's been twisted. And sports and competition are filled with idolatry. So we don't only need Christians who will go into the sport world and be moral people and live for Christ and share the gospel with their their competitors. We need Christians who will do much harder work than that. We need Christians who will go into the world of sport and discern the idols and the brokenness and work to return sport and competition what it was meant to be in a society. One other thing. Think about what a Reformed worldview says about education. Now, over the last couple of centuries, education in the West has been shaped from the bottom up by an Enlightenment worldview with its emphasis on consumerism, an idolatrous faith in science and technology to bring us to a better society, with the myth of religious neutrality and all of the idols of humanism that stand opposed to it. I mean, education is created by God, and we need educators who will work to discern its inner godly structure and return it to that. All I'm trying to say here, and I'll wrap up, is is this, that a biblical worldview, when you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it is a deep well. And it will help us to think Christianly about every vocation, journalism, law, psychology, scholarship, medicine, city planning, parenting, all of it. Now, a famous theologian once said, nothing matters but the kingdom of God. But because of God's kingdom, everything matters. That's what I've been saying, right? Nothing matters but God in his kingdom. But because of God in his kingdom, everything in life matters. Now, this is the heart of a reformed worldview. And to believe this is one thing. But we can never forget that you haven't fully accepted this view that Jesus is Lord until you've personally embraced Jesus is Lord. Because you can sit in churches with a biblical worldview and you can buy into it and you can never have that saving personal encounter 
where you stand alone before Christ and you bow in your heart to him and you receive him into your life. To say that Jesus is Lord of the whole creation and to leave that out, that's something we don't ever want to do. Let's pray.